You are listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number seven, Detective Work, guest edited by Megan Erdley. This is episode number two, The Threshold of Detectability. It features an interview with A.L. Weitzman of Forensic Architecture. Many of us, if not all of us, come from different backgrounds in political activism Broadly speaking, although different shades, perhaps several years ago, would have been content to hear things like the law and you want to reach for your gun, expertise and you want to pick up a five kilo hammer, normative frameworks like human rights, etc. I myself, less than eight years ago, published a big critique of human rights in a book called The List of All Possible Evils. All of the sudden, standing and affirming a certain positive relation to truth. And obviously there is is an issue. What has happened politically, technologically, perhaps in a reorientation of artistic and aesthetic practices that make us accept our position in relation to those terms? What you've just heard is an excerpt from a lecture that A.L. Weisman gave at the Back in the Netherlands in November 2018. He delivered this lecture at the opening of an exhibition called Forensic Justice as part of the series Propositions for Non-Fascist Living, which ran from 2017 to 2020. The clip clearly spells out what is at stake in his argument for the continued, even expanded relevance of detective work in an era of post-truth, in a political culture where appeals to emotion and personal belief shape public opinion, while appeals to established facts or expertise are ignored. In 2010, Weisman established an architectural practice he calls forensic architecture. Since then, forensic architecture has become an interdisciplinary team of architects, artists, lawyers, and scientists that investigate human rights abuses and forms of state and corporate violence that are imprinted and can be made visible within the built environment. As Weisman put it at the Forensic Justice Exhibition, It's easier for us to articulate our position in relation to what is now called post-truth environment. And of course, much is made of the popular right insurgency against truth. And you know the example from Eastern Europe, from the US, from the UK, from Israel, Palestine, etc. So a kind of an attack on what is called traditional mainstream channels of communications, account, accountability, practices of reporting, and in particular, practices of verification. So this post-truth era is an assertion of an ideological construction by which politicians, mainly politicians, but not only, try to compel somebody to believe and act regardless of evidence, and sometimes despite of evidence. Forensic architecture argues that in order to make truth claims through material research, we need to think about how matter acts as a censor and as a thing that bears witness to acts of violence. Collectively, the group studies a wide variety of architectural elements, from plans to building materials, to understand how each element actually records and responds to chemical or physical attack. Then they think about how to use architectural material to see the attack, to analyze it and build an argument about what happened. 
In some cases, forensic architecture is able to present their work in court. These appearances become opportunities to bring new forms of evidence into legal and political forums. Their collaborative work across these different forums raises important questions about what constitutes expertise, who constitutes it, who is capable of producing and interpreting evidence, and of course, what evidence looks like. In almost each one of our investigations, there are things that could be seen in the media that is available to us, say audio media, satellite images, videos from the ground. Sometimes it is just more complex uh, technical sensors and things that are just falling off from them. This is Weisman describing the threshold between things that can be recovered and things that can't in relation to forensic architecture's investigation of Mark Duggan's murder. Mark Duggan is a black British man who was murdered by the police in London, who claimed that he pulled a gun on them. After he was murdered, Duggan's family approached forensic architecture to investigate whether the police could have planted the gun they claimed to have found. When forensic architecture began to investigate, they learned that there is only one video record of the police approaching and attacking Duggan. That video didn't actually show police planting the gun. Forensic architecture conducted a technical analysis of the video and features of the camera in order to show that the police were moving fast enough to throw the gun they claimed to find. As they studied the footage and the recording device, they worked to establish what they call the threshold of detectability. Each of these materials has a different threshold, which has to be parsed and handled with care. There also sometimes the trace that is left on them is ambiguous, is not sharp, it's not clear what is being seen. And therefore, you need to either augment it or look at it through multiple different sensors in order to build a case. So when you arrive at the limit of one media, the threshold detectability, when things are clearly registered, you don't need us. When things could not be registered, also, there's very little we can do. So we often kind of exist on this sort of knife edge, if you like, on this sort of thin line between detection and no detection and kind of try to think of creative ways of augmenting that weak signal. As Weisman explains, the threshold of detectability requires research to move in two directions, towards technical design and material research on one hand, and towards social networks, institutional practices, and memory work on the other. You need to ask two things. You need to turn your gaze towards the recording device and see its limitation and ask whether those limitations are political or whether they've been mobilized politically. And then you need to shift your optics from, let's say, a remote surveillance over a particular area to, let's say, speaking to witnesses or working with communities on the ground. Obviously, memory has also thresholds uh, by which things are no longer registered. And then you, when you ask what goes against the registration of an event or particular detail in memory, you need to look at 
trauma, for example, a lot of the witnesses that we speak to are asked to speak or willing to speak about the most horrific things that they've ever experienced. But getting closer to that core, to that very traumatic core of the testimony, always bring a witness towards the threshold of memory registration. So it's the most common space for us to inhabit. This imperative to act at the limit of memory and material makes it clear that the threshold of detectability does not simply refer to a practice of observation. It's a theory of aesthetics that carefully examines what materials register, how they record action, and how their records can be interpreted to produce empirically verifiable arguments. Here's Weisman again. For us, working on detection is always working on two surfaces. One is the surface being detected, i.e. what is happening on the ground in a particular situation, what happened to a particular body, what happened to a particular building or an environment, a forest, at a particular moment. And the second territory that we investigate is the sensor itself. So we want to look at, at the way in which it is aestheticized to the phenomena it seeks to register, aestheticized in the sense of sensing it. What are the limitations of the sensing? If the limitations are legally technologically or politically imposed, we want to understand why it is so. That is to say, any act of detection needs to look both ways, one on the ground and two on the entire technical, social, political, judicial apparatus that regulates detection at a particular moment in time or in, in relation to a particular thing. So, for example, when we are working with machine learning algorithms to identify, say, as we have a particular type of tear gas canister used by repressive regime, but manufactured by a particular manufacturer who's the head of that business was a big donor to the Whitney and member of the board, etc. We always do two things. We use machine learning in order to increase accountability in a territory that is particular part of the world, Tijuana border, in Gaza, in Puerto Rico, uh, in Ferguson, wherever that clashes may have been. But we also use our, if you like, engineering of that sensor, this machine learning sensor, to investigate the territory that is the algorithm itself and see what kind of bias exists perhaps in, in its math, in its algorithmic processes. How can we introspect the tools that we are using? So just as you, know, you can detect state crimes on satellite images, but you need to actually introspect the satellite image technology to understand anything from the Cold War history of satellites to the way the images are regulated, to the way in which states have a higher resolution satellite images than what the public has, and what this differential in vision allows states to do. The notion of counter-forensics advanced by forensic architecture carefully reflects on the vision that is secured by state and corporate surveillance. This counter-forensic works to disassemble how a given technology produces an image, the history of that technology, and how the image has circulated. 
any sensor that we would use, you know, a kind of a photographic sensor on smartphones, uh, we would look both at what it captures on the ground, but we would look at what is the politics of sensing in the first place, how we can turn the gaze from the image to the detecting apparatus to say, now that we understood this image, and now that we understood what it shows, and more significantly, what it cannot show, that is what exists beyond the threshold of detectability, how does it teach us something about the manufacturer, about the technologies, about the regulations, the way that they're regulated? In a sense, always look both sides. Every camera records from both its ends. It records the events on the ground and it records its own technical process of recording. And I think without that really entangled vision of things, you simply use technology to expose human rights violation, but you neglect the entire politics that went into conceiving the apparatus that does that detection. You do not ask yourself why it is there why is it registering facial contours in that way and where does it send it? Because they investigate violence sponsored by governments, Weizmann and his team are always working against two threats. The state's ability to authorize and legalize its own acts of brutality and its pervasive surveillance apparatus. Its ability to use media to dominate public narratives. In an effort to ensure that their investigations support the work of people and communities that states target, forensic architecture prefers to conduct commissioned research rather than launch their own investigations. Weizmann explained how they take cases, though he shied away from discussing the practicalities of funding. So right now, we like working on commissions more than initiating our own investigations because... There's a limit to our imagination and people come to us from all over the world with things that perhaps we would not think about and bring about their creativity and always ask for some kind of collaboration. It would start with a commission, either from communities that are on the front line or from legal teams. You know, most of our police work now, police violence cases are coming from civil rights and human rights lawyers then we would say we usually don't take cases we know immediately how to engage with because our mandate is not only to serve our client with the evidence file that they ask us for, but to develop new evidentiary techniques. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time on a case precisely because the added value is also the methodological contribution that might come from it. Then when we understand the problem and conceptualize it, we'll understand what kind of stack of technologies and disciplines and collaborators we would need. As Weizmann has just explained, forensic architecture does not determine their technologies or collaborators in advance when they pursue a case. So in theory, every case is unique. This is a markedly different approach from state-sponsored detective work which executes standard procedures in pursuit of persons that operate outside of and in violation of national laws. Since each case that forensic architecture takes on requires a new collective agreement regarding the nature of a transgression or an act of violence, Weizmann insists that information about a given project 
remains open and accessible to the communities forensic architecture works with. He suggests that their method of open verification can create a powerful kind of shared understanding, which emphasizes open access and interpretation of material records. So we call a method open verification, which is to say that rather than kind of a closed lab, in a sense of having very clear borders, sometimes it's considered according to hygiene, sometimes it's considered according to the secret, we would work in an open and we try to reach out and integrate as many people, communities, lawyers, activists, scientists, experts, people that just want to help us and contribute it's a complicated and much messier process, but what you create is a kind of epistemic community of practice, if you like, an aesthetic common, right? Um, in a sense that everybody there is sharing a particular idea and desire to detect, sense particular things and make sense of them. So sensing and making sense, both of them included in what I call with another media theorist, investigative aesthetics. While forensic architecture seeks to build an aesthetic commons by promoting access, attention, and education to source materials, they also work to construct political forums to create new spaces for political thought and action. And then we would think about how to mobilize it because it's not enough to detect and then to synthesize, assemble, construct a case from it. You need to make it public, that is political, and to do that, we would walk the same case usually through multiple fora. So we'd put it in maybe in a legal forum with the lawyers, but we'll never allow our evidence to only function in the bureaucracy of the law. Then we might present it in the media, we might present it in citizen assemblies, like we've done with the Mark Duggan case just this weekend. We presented the work first in an event organized by the community in Tottenham, the place where Mark Duggan was, was killed. Art and cultural institution increasingly become uh, a kind of a mixed blessing, I suppose, giving us a lot of opportunity, uh, but also consuming a lot of our energy. So the network of the open verification would include the university, a media, the art, the court, activists, experts that are dispersed. And so effectively what we do is you create a complex diagram that tries to tie these, you know, it's a network of great diversity. And um, it's also a community of practice, no? It's a group that can do other things later in the future. Over the course of our conversation, it became clear to me that forensic architecture works around the singular event. As they work, that event becomes stretched out and shared, and then it can be analyzed. The event continues to grow bigger as it's understood by more people. As it circulates, there's a relationship between a particular time, a particular occurrence that is being read, detected through different mediums, that is then blown up and expanded to the size of community. I think that's right. And it's one of our most important principles is that given our limited capacity, we need to choose well a case to see if it could be as political significance, if we are very lucky transformative. As an organization, forensic architecture is most legible on a global scale. 
While they work to be sensitive to the way violence affects individual lives and relations, they tend to conceive of acts of violence as examples, or even models, that reflect larger processes that are not tangible. Here's Weisman. So we need to look for different scalar vehicles, uh, meaning ways in which an incident can become political, sometimes geopolitical. And it is indeed the nature of urban warfare, and urban warfare could describe a, a battle in Syria or in Gaza, but it could also describe some of the cases we've seen here in London, in Turkey, in police violence or in Chicago. The nature of urban warfare is that indeed it's a kind of act of leverages and gears, so little events, eruptive events, incidents, can magnify into major geopolitical importance. For example, the case we've analyzed of the killing of a human rights lawyer in Diyarbakir, eastern Turkey, since November 2015, when Tahi Elchi was killed, the Turkish government accuses the PKK of the killing. Uh, a lot of people in Diyarbakir, including the uh, Kurdish community, believe that he was murdered intentionally, assassinated by security forces. And his killing is believed to be the beginning of a major attack on the city in which he protested, Diyarbakir, which led to its complete destruction. So you have an incident, a debate around a particular incident, the killing of a human rights lawyer, and you have massive consequences in the entire eastern Turkey. So you need to understand how it works, and you need to understand how to navigate across scale, how to analyze something on a scale sometimes of DNA, on the scale of a single frame, on the scale of uh, a single gunshot, listening to it for a year and a half, trying to harvest anything that is just at the threshold of detectability of that sound to, to figure out what happens on that case, and then mobilize that case in order to affect a larger political process. This is why we called one of our pieces the long duration of the split second. The split second we understand to be the kind of indivisible unit of perceptual time, at least the way that the law relates to it. It's this temporal state of exception where police officers could get away with killing people, innocent people. But then to show how the instinct in doing that, uh, how the biases that are bearing on it, have actually huge and long history how you can understand a city, uh, a state, in a particular time, from its eruptive moment. This temporal exercise has significant implications for the way we understand the relationship between architecture and history, as well as crime. And it's a kind of counter-mapping also in a way that, you know, traditional cartography, if you want to understand, to write some treaties, I don't know, about Eastern Turkey now and the influence of the war in Syria and the Erdogan regime and, you know, the Kurdish struggle for autonomy or independence, you can write a very long historical process, or you can start from a killing, and you can see how the shadows of those long historical processes are actually cast and exist on a molecular level of time. So it is what we try to do is kind of to combine microhistory and the long duration 
or what we call molecular level history, molecular history, like diving into the really indivisible unit of time that compose a historical incident, and then find within them the principles that through wheels and pulleys and leverages and all sort of different scalar vehicles um, to understand their bearing on a much longer and wider political context. Sometimes it's through the way in which events, larger political process, gather onto an incident. And sometimes it's just in a matter of that being part of a pattern of incidents that repeat across space and time. So pattern is another kind of scale of vehicle, if you like. And we've developed techniques and technology to analyze pattern, to identify patterns of violations in time and space. Forensic architecture claims a particular kind of expertise which is less about tracking and classifying visible patterns and more about noticing and working to understand how violence gets embedded in material form. Their high-tech visualizations, audio productions, and precise material treatments are unmistakable as they demonstrate a kind of radical mastery or intimate knowledge of media technologies. They work on the threshold between the visible and the invisible, focusing on things that might be recovered. At its most powerful, their practice promises to recreate the moment right before an act of terror, to process what happened in a community, and demand something better for the future. You have been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 7, Detective Work. Guest edited by Megan Erdley. This was episode number 2, The Threshold of Detectability. The interview with A.L. Weitzman was conducted by Megan Erdley on July 5, 2019. The episode was researched, written, and narrated by Megan Erdley. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford, and produced by Ethan Curtis, Joseph Bedford, and Ariana Karate. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts for their generous support.